Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Money Talks, the Economist's weekly podcast on business and the markets. I'm Patrick Lane, Deputy Digital Editor here at The Economist, and coming up on today's show, oil prices rose over $70 a barrel after the assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani by the United States. What does the future look like for business interests in the Middle East? Next, Ben Bernanke has been speaking about how the Fed adopted to the problem of very low interest rates. But is his assessment right? And finally, are you doing Veganuary? Is this a fad or should companies take it seriously? The prices of oil and gold initially soared after the killing of Qasem Soleimani. The Iranian general was assassinated in an American airstrike and the turmoil resulting from his death has caused ripple effects across financial markets. America's president, Donald Trump, has threatened to hit Iran harder than they have ever been hit before, should it choose to retaliate. Charlotte Howard is The Economist's energy and commodities editor. Charlotte, can we start with oil? How did the markets react to General Soleimani's death? There was a big jump in oil that was commensurate with the jump that we saw after the very large attacks on Saudi oil infrastructure in September, which knocked out temporarily about half of that country's output, about 6% of the world's production. So this is a very big deal. And part of the reason why investors think that the price of oil should jump is that the likely targets for retaliation could be oil infrastructure. Now, that initial jump in the oil price seems to have faded somewhat since. Is that because people know that the long-run effect of this incident is going to have to do with whether infrastructure is taken out or supply is reduced? And we just don't know that yet. So is there a sort of initial jump and then a brief reappraisal of that going on? Well, it's interesting. Over the course of 2019, you saw the market react sometimes to geopolitical events, but was remarkably calm about the array of risks that the oil markets faced. So, for instance, the attacks at Abqaiq in Saudi Arabia in September were massive, but there had been a series of other things going on, both within Saudi Arabia with continued attacks on Saudi pipelines, airfields, different parts of Saudi Arabia's oil industry and oil infrastructure, as well as a lot of tension near the Strait of Hormuz, which is the biggest global choke point for oil transport in the world. About 20% of the world's oil passes through the Strait of Hormuz in 2018 with seizures of different tankers. And it was really quite a remarkable year. And yet the price of oil remained relatively low. Investors kind of shook off this series of risks. So I think you're seeing that a bit again now, where there's uncertainty about what the real impact of this tension will be. And is that also partly because America in particular is less dependent on oil from the Middle East than it used to be? Obviously, we go back to the oil shocks of the 1970s. There was a, a very big effect on the entire 
Western world because we were almost entirely dependent on on Middle Eastern oil then. But over the intervening decades, the market has rather shifted, hasn't it? In America in particular, in recent years, you've seen the rise of America's own shale gas production. So presumably that blunts any possible effect that you might get from an incident like this. So you've seen a very big increase in American shale gas, but also shale oil production in recent years with the United States becoming a a net exporter this year, I think is what the forecast is. So that absolutely has a big impact on global oil markets. However, there is a misperception that the West or indeed America is energy independent because of the shale boom. So the American refineries need different kinds of oil. American shale oil is light oil. Even as America becomes a bigger exporter of oil and crude, it is still importing a lot of Middle Eastern crude and crude from other sources, which is heavier than what's produced in America. So the idea of energy independence is somewhat of a myth. It'd be useful to establish as well, Charlotte, how significant is Iranian oil and Iraqi oil to the Western market and to global markets? Because you know, Iran is regarded by the United States as a pariah. It's doing all it can to hurt the Iranian economy. So is Iran very significant in the oil market these days? And what's the position with Iraq and how much of a danger could there be there? So it's interesting because of American sanctions, Iran's oil exports have really plunged in recent years. And you have lots of Iranian oil now just sitting in tankers looking for markets floating on the seas. Iraqi oil is a very different story. So Iraq Iraq has become OPEC's second largest producer behind only Saudi Arabia. Now, even before the Soleimani assassination, things had been looking quite dicey in Iraq because of months worth of protests. And the question was always when Iraqi production might react to that. To date, the oil industry had been somewhat shielded by broader unrest within the country. And in recent days, because the U.S. Embassy has advised that Americans leave the country, there have been oil companies who are taking staff out of the oil fields in Iraq. But the point is that there has been a shift in the staffing And the question is how long production levels can be maintained, even without a further really big incident, such as the Soleimani assassination or an attack on an oil field. It looks like it will be difficult to continue to sustain the current levels of production. Okay, let's switch to looking at the gold market now, because that's also reacted to the killing of the Iranian general. So what's gone on there? So you've seen gold jump, but it's important to note that gold's rise is not just because of the Soleimani assassination. The market has seen an incredible rally in gold prices in 2019. And I was looking at a note from the Royal Bank of Canada uh, to investors that was written on January 2nd, that is right before the assassination, that was forecasting a rise and a continued rise in gold prices in the coming year. So yes, people are looking to gold now, but they were looking to gold even before. And that's for a variety of reasons. But one reason is there's just this uncertainty within the bigger market of how to read all these different, sometimes conflicting economic indicators, uncertainty about the trade war. There's just a lot of uncertainty within the market. And when people are feeling uncertain, they often put their capital in gold. So these are two very important commodity markets that we've been talking about. What might be next for these? What should we be looking out for over the next few weeks? Well, it looks like gold will have quite a strong year. 
in 2020 as it did in 2019, particularly as tension continues to mount in, in the Middle East and there are other uncertainties, geopolitical uncertainties on the horizon. With oil, it's really an interesting question of sort of watching and waiting. The oil price has already fallen from its little spike that it had after the Salmani assassination. And we'll have to see whether investors in 2020, as they were in 2019, continue to shake off these very big geopolitical risks as they did last year. So tense times have just got uh, quite a bit tenser. Thanks very much, Charlotte. You can read more about the impact this conflict might have on business interests in the Middle East in the upcoming edition of The Economist. To subscribe, go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. How do you manage economies in a world of very low interest rates? It's a question Ben Bernanke has been trying to solve. He was chairman of the Federal Reserve between 2006 and 2014 and so was in charge when the great financial crisis of 2007 to 2009 broke. This year, Mr Bernanke is president of the American Economics Association. He laid out his solutions in his presidential address at its annual conference in San Diego and his speech caught the eye of Henry Kerr, our economics editor. Henry, what did Ben Bernanke have to say? The context of his speech is a look back, really, at economic policy during the last decade. When Ben Bernanke was in charge of the Fed during the financial crisis, he had to stimulate an economy that was doing very badly. Typically, central banks do that by cutting interest rates. But this has been getting harder and harder for central banks to do because interest rates are so low. They're close to zero, below which they can't fall very far. And this fall in interest rates, which is causing problems for central banks, is a long-run phenomenon. First, there has been a downward trend in nominal interest rates since 1980, globally as well as in the United States. This downward trend reflects the conquest of inflation, but it is also the result of demographic and technological changes that have increased desired global saving relative to desired investment, thereby reducing equilibrium real interest rates. Low nominal interest rates now appear to be part of the long-term financial and economic environment, even when monetary policy is at a neutral setting. The second point is that monetary policy historically reacted aggressively to recessions, with cuts to the funds rate typically exceeding 500 basis points in downturns. The third, since about 2000, the Fed has been increasingly running out of room to cut its short-term policy rate. Rate cuts after the 2001 recession brought the funds rate down to 1%. And in the deep recession that followed the 2007-09 global financial crisis, the policy rate fell nearly to zero and remained there for seven years. In central banking lingo, policy was constrained by the effective lower bound on the short-term policy interest rate, usually taken in the United States to be zero. Rates today are no longer at zero but remain below 2%. So here's the new challenge for 21st century monetary policy. And Henry, how did Ben Bernanke try to meet that challenge? Well, after the financial crisis, the Federal Reserve used two uh, monetary policy tools, really, other than lowering interest rates to try and stimulate the economy. One was quantitative easing. That's where the Fed buys bonds in an attempt to drive down long-term interest rates 
And the other is forward guidance, the idea that if the central bank talks more about how it might act in various circumstances or how it plans to act or how it would act if certain things happened, then that will help financial markets today and, and provide a stimulus today. Okay. The work that he was presenting in this in this speech was basically an appraisal of how those tools had worked for the Fed and how effective they were. So what was his conclusion? Well, he uh, looked at the experience of the past decade and he said that these unconventional tools, forward guidance and quantitative easing QE, could provide stimulus equivalent to about a three percentage point cut in interest rates. Now, that's quite a lot. In a typical recession in the past, the Fed has cut interest rates by five or six percentage points. So he said, according to the experience of the past decade and the simulations he ran, uh, you can get about half that stimulus from these unconventional tools. So that means you've got basically quite a bit of extra room for policy that you didn't think you had until the crisis came along. You had to try and come up with these new tools. So that sort of eases the problem of uh, what economists call the zero lower bound, you know, hitting zero interest rates or not wanting to go too much below it. But that problem still exists, right? It doesn't go away altogether. Exactly. So you've got three percentage points worth of firepower, if you like, from these unconventional policies. Typically in a recession, you'd want five to six. So if your interest rates are really low, say if they're at one, then you've only got a total then of four, haven't you? So that's still not enough. So it doesn't entirely get around the problem of the lower bound on interest rates. And that was the ultimate conclusion that he drew, that if your interest rates are in the range of two to three, you're probably okay because you've got those alternative policies in the locker. If they're much lower, then you've got a problem and then you've got to think deeper about other routes you might take. Yeah. And another interesting thing I thought was that there's economics being economics and economic policy being economic policy. Things don't stand still. So the way that market participants reacted to what the Fed was doing changed over time, didn't it? Particularly with, with quantitative easing, they came to anticipate it. And also the Fed got better at using forward guidance and communicating. So those... Those dynamics uh, were part of the story too, weren't they? Yes, the policies uh, interacted and it may have been helpful for the Fed, but it's made it a little bit tricky for researchers trying to work out how much of an impact QE has. When you're thinking about how much firepower QE gives you, there's this curious thing. According to lots of sort of baseline economic models, QE isn't really meant to work. So you're dealing with a tool where you're sort of, you think it might work, you think the models aren't capturing everything, but you're not really sure how much of an effect it will have. And in fact, I think Bernanke himself once said that the problem with QE is that it works in practice, but not in theory. So you have to look back and see what's actually happened to figure out what effect it's having. And just to complicate matters a little further, of course, this hasn't been a problem that's faced only the United States. This is a, a general problem of Western economies and Japan too. So you've got central banks in the Eurozone, elsewhere in Europe, Japan, Britain, all facing a very similar problem. But to what extent do his conclusions carry over from the Fed to those other central banks? Well, not too easily, unfortunately, for those other central banks, primarily for the simple reason that interest rates are much lower in those economies. I mean, Japan's been struggling with the zero lower bound on interest rates for decades. And today it has long term interest rates even uh, that are below zero. 
So when you're talking about policies like QE, which are meant to reduce the long rate, well, it's no good if your long rate is facing the same problem as the short rate, which is that it's really close to zero. So it doesn't apply easily there. A similar thing can be said in the, in the eurozone. In Britain, the curious thing is that the sort of fancy economic models say that interest rates should settle at a level that is higher even than in the US. But of course, at the moment, rates are lower than in the US. And so if you're saying you want two to three percentage points of sort of regular firepower coming from the short-term interest rate, the only place where in the, the big rich economies where you can say, okay, that really gets you off the hook is America. And even there, it's borderline. Everywhere else, interest rates are too low. So you've still got to think about what other than QE and forward guidance you might do if uh, Ben Bernanke's analysis is correct. Okay. And when you get into that territory, when QE and forward guidance aren't enough, what can central banks and governments do at that point? Well, there are a couple of options. One is to take interest rates negative, as has happened in Japan, as has happened in, in Europe. It's unlikely than that get you very far. The main obvious alternative for stimulating your economy is not to rely so much on monetary policy, but instead to use fiscal policy, basically to get the government to spend more, tax less, uh, run a bigger budget deficit to stimulate the economy. Uh, the problem with that is it runs into all sorts of political economy questions. How do you organise your fiscal stimulus so that it's the right size? So it's a little bit of a trickier path to go down to say you're going to use fiscal policy to manage the economy because the historic judgment has been that it's better to use monetary policy because it's not so politicised. To return to where we started then with the United States and, and Ben Bernanke, Bernanke was the architect of these unorthodox policies in the United States when he was chairman of the Fed. In this speech, in a way, he's marking his own homework, isn't he? Is he too fair to himself in his conclusions? I think it's fair to say that in the past, Ben Bernanke has not been hesitant about defending his record. Uh, his memoir, for example, is called The Courage to Act. Uh, he faced a lot of critics at his time in the Fed, and he's been keen to sort of fight them off. However, I don't think you can look back at the past decade of US monetary policy and say everything's been fine. The Fed has again and again underestimated the potential to get unemployment down without inflation going up. So to the extent the message is, well, QE and forward guidance worked okay in the 2010s and they're going to be okay in future. I'm not sure that's quite right because really when you look back at the 2010s, you think monetary policy should have been more aggressive. So it didn't perform that well. That said, I've got no basis on which to on which to criticise his estimates of the precise impact that QE and forward guidance had in the past. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's the start of another year, which means that people around the world have made New Year resolutions. Of course, they don't always keep them. 
but one recent Ipsos poll showed that one American in 12 had resolved to be more conscious about the environment in 2020. And awareness about the health of the planet is surely on the rise. Our Schumpeter columnist, Henry Trix, has been looking into how much this has been affecting consumer behaviour and therefore how companies are having to respond. Henry, how real is this change? It's a phenomenon uh, that has been affecting consumer behaviour for a year or two now. And particularly this Christmas, I felt personally that there was a kind of a climate grinch hanging over this this Christmas. The sort of pressure on all of us uh, not to eat meat, not to fly, to be very uh, careful with the uh, presents that we give, how, um, how throwaway are the items of clothing. And it's been given impetus, I guess, over the last year or so by the likes of Greta Thunberg, uh, who has made quite an issue of this idea of shame, that we should be ashamed of certain things that we do that may hurt the climate. And I suppose travel's the most obvious of those. I mean, while we're on the subject of a Swedish activist, there's a Swedish word, flugskam, which has pretty much become part of the English language almost, meaning flight shame. And there's uh, another word meaning train boasting, I think. Go on, Patrick. I I think it's tugskrit or or something like that. But anyway, travel is the most obvious example. Is this actually showing up in actual flight miles and in airlines responses? Yes, it is. In Northern Europe, which is where flight shame is most prevalent, uh, you can see, I mean, you hear airline bosses basically saying that they are aware of slowdown in passenger traffic uh, simply because of this phenomenon. What's quite interesting is that this is not just a phenomenon of you know, the sort of the Western world. In a, a survey that UBS recently did, China came out as one of the highest countries where people who fly regularly were saying that they are actually reducing the number of flights because of flight shame. And what about going beyond travel? I mean, food was an, uh, one you mentioned in particular. I mean, we've seen people at least talking about veganism or reducing the amount of meat they eat. How's this showing up as well? Well, it's showing up, I guess, in things like the way that uh, McDonald's and Burger King have introduced plant-based burgers and just a general sense that people are moving away from milk towards sort of milk alternatives. So let's just say soy drink or almond drink or whatever. Uh, There's been a couple of big American dairies who've gone bust as a result of this. And that suggests too that there's there's more to this than just, just a fad. I know we started this off slightly facetiously by talking about New Year's resolutions and uh, and so on. But, you know, if you've got companies that are going bust as a result, that suggests that this isn't just a fad. There's a real change in consumer behaviour going on underneath all this. Yeah, companies are taking it very seriously. I mean, the fashion industry is one that produces actually far more emissions than, say, the airline industry. We've had, you know, incredible growth of fast fashion and the turnover of collections and whatever over the last few years. And suddenly it's kind of coming to a bit of a screeching halt. And you have companies like H&M and Sara, uh, which are basically joining forces to try and find a way of making fashion less throwaway and less dirty. So companies, I think, 
are aware now that consumer sentiment is so delicate and so volatile that they have to really pay attention to this. And also, it's a big marketing advantage for them if they can come up with sort of green products, if you like, you know, if they can come up with products that that do you good, feel good, etc., then they're going to win over new customers. The fast fashion one strikes me as a bit, I don't know, contradictory or paradoxical, because you know it's aimed at young people. And yet the environmental consciousness, of course, one also associates with young people. Now, of course, you know, obviously not all young people are the same and so not all, you know, middle-aged men are the same. But it's curious that you've got the same two trends, it seems, going on within the same demographic group. So for, for, for companies, they've got to work out who it is they're trying to who it is they're trying to sell to, who it is they're trying to impress. Because if you tell fibs about how green your product is, then you should eventually get found out. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And the other thing is, is that these young people, that they also are incredibly connected. So it's very easy for them to shame. You know, they use social media to send round messages about particular products and whatever very quickly. So um, so you have to really handle them carefully. But yes, at the same time, they're your, they're your biggest potential market. And I think this is why companies are taking it particularly seriously. Yeah, and it's the double-edged sword of modern communications, right? It's the same tools that companies use to promote their products and to say how good they are, beneficial in some sense. It can be turned against them now. Yes. I mean, as someone who um, who lives with teenagers in the house and is constantly being shamed, I also know how relentless these young kind of climate scrooges can be. I mean, they can demand that you stop using your car or you use your car less. And as soon as you've done that, then it's kind of like, right, now you should fly less too. And then it's uh, actually you should be eating less meat. And now, you know, so it's a, it's a bit of a snowball. And so I have to ask, I mean, have you actually been shamed into giving anything up? <laughs> um, I'm afraid to say that in January, I am obliged to be a vegan, which I am negotiating with a great deal of difficulty at the moment. But I feel like this is probably something that we're all going to have to engage with over time. Certainly, to take a more serious note, it is important, I think, that we think about what we consume. This incredible consumer bubble that we've had over the last 30 years or so has coincided with an extraordinary increase in emissions, in carbon emissions, in climate change. So we have to think about what we consume. Oh, well, best of luck, at least for January, Henry. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Before you go, please leave us a rating. I'm Patrick Lane in London. This is The Economist.